the, lo- the love of God, this is something that we, I mean, understandably so, we talk about um, in the context of worship constantly. It's the, thing that kind of, it's the thing that gathers us together, or I guess probably should gather us together. And I, I wonder sometimes if we really know what love is. I think I, I think I struggle to actually know, I mean, what is, what is actually love and how do you love someone or how are you receiving love? So John, we are back in John. We did John 3 last week because of an intro back into where you all left off last week, which is John 8. So we're going to be in John 8 today. We're picking up in the middle of a bit of a conversation Jesus is having with some people. And some of them, Jesus is just stirring controversy. And we have a fair amount of conflict that's going on at this point, but you also have at this breaking point where you left off, some of the Jews, it says, believed in him. And what we're going to see as we move forward, and I would love to read the whole passage. I'm not going to. We're going to talk through it. So again, if you have a Bible, I would strongly encourage you to open it up. John 8, starting verse 31, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Um, And just as a... um, Uh, Looking forward to next week, we're going to do John 9, and it's kind of a long passage. If you get a chance this week to read through it, just read through it so that you know what's coming up, because I don't know, again, if we'll be able to read through the whole text itself. But John 8, 31, Jesus is going to be making some pretty hard challenges, and he does so because of love, even though it doesn't sound so much like love. So we're going to read the first few verses uh, I think probably just the first, we got this slide and one more, I believe. So we'll read those, and then we're going to launch into this, okay? So together, if you don't mind standing, let's read this together. This is John 8, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Fathers, we step into these words and this passage, this conversation that Jesus is having. Please allow us to be called into the conversation, to hear it for what to hear what was really being said at that time, and then for your spirit to allow us to hear what it is you need for us to hear right here, right now. And in the midst of this, Lord Jesus, you are, you are the reason that we've come together. And so we, are the, we need to hear your voice. Please speak, we ask in your name. Amen. All right. John says there were those that believed in Jesus, Um, but what is it that they believed? Because Jesus is going to say some really difficult things, and by the end of this passage that we're going to look at, they don't don't like him. They don't 
apparently a lot of them fall away from their belief or they are challenged in what they have believed that what they believed was not actually who he really was and who he really is. They had some idea about him. They had some thoughts about who he was. But at the end, they, they realized, wait a minute, we're not seeing him for who he really is. And we're not really sure we like what he's showing himself to be. So I do wonder, especially more and more lately, if we're not in a very similar place. We like the idea of Jesus, especially when we can use him as our mascot, right? Our little cheerleader, rah, rah, for our particular personal agendas or preferences or political parties, not to be blasphemous, but we like to put Jesus out on the street corner with our particular sign and spin it and do all the dancing. You know what I'm saying? How often do we make Jesus into that? Jesus turns our ideas upside down and he refuses to be the little boy spinning the sign on the street corner. He won't be that for us. He is going to make us uncomfortable. Hopefully he's done that in our lives already. He's going to do so much more. I think I'm seeing this more in John than I've ever seen it before. Jesus just makes us uncomfortable. But he does it because he loves. So he's not here simply to support our agenda. He's here to set you free. That's what he's here for. There's a freedom that the Bible talks about that requires us to consider a deeper problem, both within our world, certainly, but also within ourselves and maybe even within our smaller community. One of the fundamentals of the biblical story that Jesus is pointing out in this particular dialogue is that we have a systemic problem, a systemic problem that keeps us from being free from being who we were really made to be. And we hear about things like systemic racism right now. And I know there's lots of opinions on that, but let me tell you, that is the tip of the iceberg of, uh, iceberg of our systemic problem. It's symptomatic of some deeper systemic problems that we have, which in this passage, he now um, leads us to the solution, which is abiding in Jesus sets us free. If we abide in Jesus, we will be set free. So how are we to understand this freedom from this text? We're going to look at three, three areas. We are free from something. We are, we are free to something. And then we're going to be free through something. All right, so from something. What are we going to be free from? Well, he says it outright, slavery. You're free from slavery. Uh, Jesus, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, that's how you're going to know if you're really my disciple. Like, if you're really my disciple, you're going to abide. Whatever this, I'm not going to get into what abide is. Abide is this sense of living with. It can be used for, like, living in the home of. It's, it's, uh, it is a rest, but it's also an activity. It's abiding. I'm not getting into that. That's for another sermon another time. But we are to abide, he says. If you abide in me, you're going to be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth's going to set you free. Their response was, look, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we are going to become free? This is how they respond to this. They do not see their slavery, which is very interesting because think about, like, just historically. They say they're, 
They're children of Abraham, okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids, 12 sons. He had more kids than that, 12 sons that then become what we consider the nation of Israel. What happened to that 12, those 12 tribes? Where did they end up going? To Egypt, right? What happened to them there? They were freaking slaves, right? They were slaves for a long time, and they got delivered from slavery. And then they get into the land, and over and over again, if you read this book called Judges, <laughs> you'll see that they keep getting under slavery. And then, as time goes on, they actually rise to be a decent-sized kingdom, but it doesn't last very long, and they get exiled. They have all kinds of nations coming against them, and they get enslaved by them. And then currently, like right then in the first century, who was, there, who was occupying their space? The Roman Empire. We've never been slaves. We're sons of Abraham. I, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, how, how are you thinking this? They knew their history. I don't know what it ex- exactly is that they meant when they say they weren't slaves, but somehow they were done denying their history and their present circumstances. That part I know. Denying slavery that we have experienced or inflicted in our history or our present makes it really hard to see why we may still need to be set free. That's something for us to sit in a little bit, maybe talk about. And maybe we can relate, you know, I've never been anybody's slave. Yeah, that's probably true in, in one sense. But are we blind to the slavery maybe that is less obvious? to what maybe controls and compels us. That's one to think about for a while. They and maybe us need to be woke. Maybe we need to be awakened. Freedom begins by recognizing our slavery. Slavery to what? Okay, so now he's going to move into giving us the kind of the, the objects of our slavery. And he says, slavery to sin, that's right there. But then to the end of the passage, which we didn't read, is 51 and 52. He's also talking about slavery to death. So he wants to set us free from our slavery to sin and to death. So this first one in verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everybody who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you, you're going to be free indeed. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Um, he's saying your, your slavery is more intimate, it is more sinister, it is more intertwined in us as persons and people than we realize. Slaves to sin is this common theme, especially when you look at the New Testament. So we could look lots of places. Paul likes to talk about the Apostle Paul who writes a lot of the New Testament talks about this a fair amount. Romans 6 is one of them. And he says following Jesus' line. Of, everything that Paul says is just a reiteration of what Jesus says. I don't know if you realize that. When you read the New Testament, everything is an outflow of both the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of, and then what the New Testament writers are saying is a following of what Jesus had said. So he says this in Romans 6, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This was Paul's words. So whatever you obey, why, do we, why read that? Because it helps us to understand. Whatever you obey is your master. You don't get to choose that. Whatever you obey is your master. What do you obey? What controls our lives? Sinning is obeying anything 
other than God. Like we could talk a lot about what is sin. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith. So this is a thing that was written a long time ago, 1600s, and they have this catechism that goes with it. So it's a question and answer thing. So the children's part of the catechism, one of the questions is, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. <laughs> uh, so I grew up with these catechisms. So, which is good. It's not, it's not a bad thing, but, but it's, it's more. It's, it's, it's conforming to. It's being led by something other than God. Right? That, that by definition leads us to a path that is harmful, that pulls against the very fabric of who we are, what we were made to be, which is fundamentally an orientation to life that is self-focused. I would say that is the heart of the matter. It's fundamentally self, you could even call it self-saving. It's some way to try to make yourself worth something or valuable. But sinful acts that run contrary to God's good character and way of life is a result of a deeper problem. It's a disordered affection. It's a disordered orientation. It's listening to the voice and the word that says, you must define good for yourself. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do. Come on, you're Americans, for heaven's sake. You, you must look out for and love yourself because who else, is gonna, who else can you even trust to work for your interest? I mean, really, who else can you trust to really look out for your best interests? It is a disposition that is oriented towards self-preservation and promotion rather than, rather than trusting God. That he is actually good and he speaks and leads you to what is supremely good. Sin is belie- not believing that and believing you know better. That's fu- fundamentally. Are we okay with some level of that? Okay. If we abide in Jesus, he offers a better picture of life that breaks the chains of the controlling compulsions to the things that fracture our life, the things that pollute our life. He can actually break the chains. Now, I want to be careful here. This is, this is maybe for a longer conversation. Please talk to me if you have concerns or questions about this. I want to be careful because this doesn't mean temptation goes away. That's, that's not what he's saying here. But the urges don't have to determine your behavior. I think it's part of what he's saying. I think that's part of what he's saying. If he becomes more attractive, then the unhealthy attractions become more noticeable to us. We realize, oh, eh, maybe that's not the healthiest thing. Maybe they start to become noticeable and they start to lose their control, their mastery over us. That doesn't mean you will never lust again. I wish that were the case. (laughs) Nor does it mean that you're not going to ever have the urge to twist the truth to make yourself just look a little bit better in the eyes of others. It doesn't mean that urge isn't going to be there. Nor does it mean that you're never going to fall again into the old traps. But as we abide in the goodness of Jesus, the sin can begin to kind of lose its flavor. It's like, man, that used to taste so sweet. But I've been tasting this Jesus life and it's actually better. I don't, it's meh. I mean, I still kind of am attracted to it, but maybe it loses its flavor a little bit. It dulls in time. It shows itself over time to be the cancer that it actually is. And with that, we can do what? We can repent and we, we can return to the better life. We can repent. We can come back. We, we tasted it again. It's like, oh, shoot, I did it again. And it's, it's just not really that worth it, is it? And we can come back. 
And even if the attraction or the appetite doesn't fully fade, because it may not, you may continue to have that orientation in that direction. You may have that, but it doesn't have to control our lives or determine how we live our life. He sets us free. Abiding in Jesus frees us from the slavery to sin that also leads to the second thing, the slavery to the death. So this is 51 and 52. Um, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. All right, for those that are keeping his word, abiding in him, they will, it's either they will never see death or they will not see death forever. The Greek is a little, I'm a little fuzzy with what it is. So you'll never see death or you're not going to see death forever. Okay, in other words, you're going to be free from the slavery to death. But everybody sees death, right? You're all going to die. Like we believe unless Jesus returns and raises the dead before we actually get to die, we're all going to actually die. He knows this. People die. He saw people die, right? But he seems to be telling of a greater defeat, a greater freedom that is for now and the future. He's talking about something greater. The big theme in Scripture that Paul summarizes, again, in Romans chapter 6, 23, sometimes it's kind of a famous verse, says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we are free from sin, we're also going to be free from death. There's this connection. It's connected from the very beginning, back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, about sin and death being intertwined. So if you're going to get freed from sin, well, I guess you're going to have to be freed from death as well. Freedom is a, this is a freedom that we can enjoy today and forever. Today, there's a direct connection between our sin, our self-serving way, and death. Think, of, think about what sin does in our own lives. Think of the unhealth that our selfishness produces. I mean, have you, have you seen what your, uh, what your selfishness produces? Like, if, hopefully if you're over three years old... You've started seeing that. Where sin, you know, with this freedom begins to lose its power. It can begin to lose its attraction. And we can live in a state of repentance and and a new kind of orientation. The death and decay that come with sin can can begin to lessen with him. Life and death, life and health tend to grow up in us and in in the lives of those around us when the sin that produces death begins to fade. Because when the sin begins to fade, the death begins to fade, and life begins to grow instead. But then there is the future, right? There is an ultimate death that sin chains us to. It's in front of you. We're all facing it. A death of forever separation from the good life. A forever separation from the self-giving life of God. The freedom Jesus offers here is a freedom from ultimate forever death. He is giving us that. That is something that he's giving to us. Though we face the physical death, even that death is going to, this is one of the strange things about the Christian story. Even the physical death is going to be undone. It's going to be reversed. We believe in this thing called a resurrection. We believe God is going to restore all things. That includes some form of, like you're not going to be in the forever state. You're not going to be less than what you are. You're going to be more than what you are. He's going to undo even this physical death. So what do you do with this? Well, one, it's hope, right? It's hope for the future. But it's also a freedom from the fear of death in our present. Of course, we want to work against it right now. 
right? This is why we wear masks, because we want to work against harm of others. We want to work against death, right? We want to do things in life that actually work against death. That's a good thing. We want to do that, but eventually we are going to face it. But it's not your forever. It doesn't have to be a master over you. You don't have to fear it. Even in the physical death, we're not going to face the greater death. That's, you're never going to face the greater death of losing God's goodness. And you're never going to have, in Jesus, you never have to face the, the ultimate consequences of what sin drug us into. You, you won't have to do that. Why? Because the story about Jesus is that he is taking care of the debt. He's, he's actually taken those consequences, so we don't have to fear the death. For those who abide in Christ, we are given life that is lasting now. We're given a life of restoration and forgiveness now with God, and then also that should start affecting how we do life with each other in community so that some of the results of death can be held back. Some of the results of death can even be undone right now. Eternal life, the good life, can spread into our lives today, and it can start uprooting the harm and decay and the separation that sin and death has caused. It can actually start making a difference now. It really, I know sometimes it's hard to see that. But it really can. It can really start making a, a difference. If this is true, what does that mean? Well, you no longer have to live in a way that is primarily concerned about your life. You don't, you don't have to live anymore in a way that's primarily preserving your life or building a life for yourself. If our lives are actually secured now and will forever be secured and will one day be restored, well, now we can live for the good of other people. You don't have to actually live for yourself. Like there's freedom there. And for now, even if we die, we actually live because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, quote from Paul. We don't have to. Abiding in Jesus frees us from slavery to sin, and it frees us from slavery to death. All right. Now, there's another freedom, though. It's freedom to something. And I'm going to call it freedom to a better father. Are y'all with me? Are we okay? Do we need a stretch? We need to stand up. How, what time is it? Where's a clock in this place? I, am, I, I feel like I, oh my gosh, it's 12 o'clock. Are we okay? Can I keep going? Okay. All right. Good. Thank you. Thank you. What would, you, what would I do if you said no? Well, I guess, <laughs> I guess we'll pick up next week. Uh, okay, freedom the, the, here. Okay, so this better to a better father, to a better father. Jesus starts talking about fathers. He talks, so we didn't read it all, but he talks a lot about fathers moving on. We, we read a little bit of it. He speaks of what he will, what, what he has seen with his father, and then also that they do what they have seen from their father. <laughs> they argue with him. Abraham's our daddy. Jesus says, you know, if that were true, you would be doing what Abraham did. I don't think you're doing what Abraham did. But instead, you actually seek to kill me, the one who has actually told you the truth that I heard from God. This does not sound like what Abraham did. No, you are doing what your father did. They respond with, look, are we born of sexual immorality? We have one father, even God. Okay, where in the world did that come from, sexual immorality? I don't know, a couple of things could be. Could be, he's looking back, they're looking back at the prophets, and now the prophets spoke about the unfaithful, adulterous people, 
right? And they're saying, we're not like that. We're not like that. We're real. We're real followers of God. We're real followers of Abraham. Could be. Maybe. I don't know this because I don't know what Jesus' reputation at this time was. Did they know about Jesus' questionable conception and birth? Maybe. Maybe they're saying, look, we know your mama will get pregnant out of wedlock. At least we're not born of sexual immorality. I don't know. That's a jab right there, but they're definitely jabbing. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that was the case. Jesus doesn't really bite, so he continues. If God were your father, you would love me. This is in verse 42. For I came from God. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Then he comes out and he says what he's been alluding to. This whole, He's been talking about their father. And it's like, who's their father? Who's their daddy? Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. <laughs> And, and, your, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from, think about this, think about someone actually telling you this. If they were sitting in front of you and saying this, your dad is Satan, <laughs> okay? He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his very own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The heat rise. Yeah, I know, right? The heat's just rising. I mean, there's just, this is a battle. This is a battle. It's a little surprising they don't pick up stones to kill him now. Okay? That's coming. It's coming. But they don't do it right then. Instead, they say, you are, you're, a, you're, a, you're a Samaritan. You have a demon. It's like these kids that are fighting, right? It's like, oh, yeah, you think I'm, I'm the son of Satan? Well, you're Satan, <laughs> right? I mean, they're, they're trying to find some kind of a comeback to this whole conversation. All right, what do you do with all this? Jesus' words are harsh. Man, we, gentle and mild, I, I don't know. Jesus is not gentle here, but he's loving loving. Jesus says, I want to free you from slavery. I want to free you to a better father. You're listening to and you're following the father of lies and murder, and the evidence is your life. The evidence is your life, lies and murder and deceit and bitterness and hate and envy and pride. What voice are you hearing, he's saying? What is the voice of that father telling you? And now for us, what is the voice telling you and me today? You're never going to measure up. <laughs> Try harder. Is that your father's voice? You're not quite as valuable as the person sitting next to you, so at least in your mind, you better tear them down or elevate yourself above them. Or who in the heck would ever love you? Come on. I mean, look at that guy. People, I know why people love him, but why in the world would anybody love you? Or maybe the opposite. Come on, look at me. Why doesn't everyone see how wonderful I am? Right? What voice is whispering into your ears? It's all kind of voices speaking to us. What do they produce? What do those voices produce? Self-consciousness? can produce pride. They can produce insecurity. They can produce self-love. They can produce self-loathing. They can produce separate. All of them produce separation from others. They all 
debilitate community. This is the voice of an abusive father that we've all heard. Maybe you literally had an abusive father, but you have an an abusive father that you can't see that loves to whisper into your ear. And he raises us up to be liars and murderers or unteachable, self-righteous, judgmental, religious, or irreligious people. That's what that father raises us up to be. What do all these voices have in common? Here's what it is. Look at yourself. Find your value or your lack of value in yourself. Find your hope or your despair in yourself. Or find some kind of validation in something else other than the only one who can actually meet your need. Find it anywhere except for the one. That's what that father tells you. Jesus came so that they and we could hear another voice that would free us from self, that would paradoxically grow us into a better self. Paradox. Jesus comes to tell us what the good father has to say. But we need to be convinced that the voice of the bad father promises salvation. You gotta, if you're not convinced of this, you're not going to even want to hear the better father. You've got to be convinced that this other father promises you salvation. Salvation meaning like life or whatever you want to define as salvation. He promises, but he delivers death. Jesus came to be the voice, and he speaks the words of his father, and with that, Jesus goes on at the end of this chapter to say, and this is verse 55, um, I know God, I've, I've come to show him by keeping his word, and by the way, your father Abraham, he was actually excited that he was going to see my day. He was looking forward to my coming, and then they say, look, you're not even 30, 50 years old. Like, how, how is it that you saw Abraham, or you're saying, that Ab- you're saying Abraham saw you? How is this even possible? And here we go. All right, here's the final straw right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is like a radical, especially in the Jewish world. This is a radical claim. And they got part of what he was saying. 59, in verse 59, he says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. All right, what is all this? Jesus is not just claiming. So I think I'm in like the second sub-point of this. There you go. You're hearing his voice but he's also the very presence. So Jesus is not just claiming to be the voice, but God come to it. He's claiming to be the presence of God, and they got that. They actually got that. He's freeing us to a better father by being the presence of the father with us. Before Abraham was I am refers to God's name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. It refers to God's existence. It refers to God's continual I am. What is that? It was before, it was current, and it was after. It is presence. And John makes this interesting comment that when they tried to kill him, he was hidden from them, and then he left the temple. What's the imagery there? I mean, why make the big point about him leaving the temple? Well, he was in the temple and he left. Historically, that's just what happened. But the temple is also where God's presence was to reside. That's how they knew That's where they went to experience God's presence. In their hatred and their anger, Jesus as God's presence left the temple. He left. 
Abiding in Jesus sets us free to, to a better father, to hear his voice, to know his presence. He is offering himself for the freedom. But if we run him off, what hope do we have? I mean, come on. There's our hope, and we just kicked him out. We can't even have freedom without him. Where do you go from here? I mean, what's the hope at this point? Throughout this section, Jesus keeps exposing their secret. What's their secret? They want him killed. We already know that prior to getting to to John 8. They want to kill him, and he proves this to be true at the end because they try to stone him but are not successful. All right, how can we abide if we keep trying to kill him? How can you actually abide in him if you keep trying to kill him? What would ever turn us from our false belief about him to really knowing him and letting his word abide in us, settle into us? What's going to, come on, something has got to happen here. He knew they wanted to kill him. This, this isn't, this was, oh, wait a minute, guys, don't stone me. I didn't know you hated me this much. He knew they hated him. He knew it. And though he snuck out this time, he sticks around. Ah. Oh. He leaves the temple, but he didn't leave the people. The presence of the temple went to the people in need. And we're going to see that very pointedly next week in John 9 and following. How does he free us? Well, as he stuck around, he allowed our slavery, our corruption, our our lying, our murderous tendencies to come against him. He By sticking around, he knew what he was doing. He persisted. That's it. He's freeing us through the persistence that he has. He's persisting. Throughout his work of preaching and healing and giving himself away, he rubbed against our rejection and our hate until the end when finally he allowed our slavery and our corruption and our lying and our misrepresentation misrepresentation of him, the murderous rage of our father to grab him by the neck, to imprison him, and to drag him into death. He took it. All that corruption but he refused to be corrupted by it. Oh. He he took our wrath and held back the wrath we deserved, allowing it not to be poured out on us, but rather swallowed into himself. He faced not just the evil of humanity, but the full brunt of the bad father's evil. He took it. Losing his life is how he defeated sin and death. It's not like anything else we see in the world. It's not like any other victory that the world celebrates. He won by losing. He revealed the Father's voice and presence and heart and desire by taking on evil's voice and presence and heart and desire and not allowing it to shake him of his goodness or to shake us from his loving, persistent hands. We all have failed in the face of evil and selfish desires. We are all slaves. We've all been enslaved, and he hasn't. He's the only truly free one. And he was validated as being the word of God made flesh. He was validated as the voice in the presence of God by overcoming death. I mean, that, how do you know that's all true? Because he didn't stay dead. He rose. He overcame death, returning to us with peace and forgiveness, not war and hatred. When he came back, he didn't say, now I'm going to get you. 
<laughs> forgiveness, peace. His persistent love is what we are to abide in. What is this truth that we are to abide in? What is the law book that I need to know from Jesus? No, 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 no. It's His persistent love that He wants us to abide in. Let that truth set us free. Father, we need, we need, we need to know this kind of truth. We need to know you, Lord Jesus, is the embodiment, the, the voice and the presence.